0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 662 with Paula Davis. Paula has some pro tips on beating burnout with a broader team perspective, so you'll learn one Well, how an engaged workforce can still burn out. Two, the tiny noticeable things or TNTs that make us more resilient. And three, how to keep your mind from catastrophizing. So if you wanna check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP662. And if you're chilling at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend the Gold Nugget email list, which gives you a summary write-up of the insights from Paula, as well as access to the whole vault of all of those insights that have emerged historically. So that's called The Gold Nuggets at AwesomeAtYourJob.com. Now here's Paula's story. Paula Davis, J.D., M.A.P.P., is the founder and CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, a training and consulting firm that helps organizations reduce burnout and build resilience at the team, leader, and organizational level. Paula left her law practice after seven years and earned a master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. Paula is also the author of Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. Her expertise has been featured in numerous media outlets, including the New York Times and Psychology Today. Big thanks to Paula for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. now. Here is Paula. Paula, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
0: Thank you, Pete. It's so great to be with you.
1: Well, I'm excited to get into your wisdom. We're talking burnout and I understand you have a personal bit of experience with burnout. Could you share your story?
0: Absolutely. I uh, practiced law for seven years and burnout is really what uh, cut my law practice short. I Spent the last year of my law practice going through burnout. I didn't know what it was at the time. I just I, I just knew I was off in terms of how I was managing my stress, how I was feeling, how I was really processing the challenges associated with my work and it took me quite a bit of time to really understand what that was and i didn't i didn't know there was a word burnout i was thinking just purely in terms of stress and so i didn't start in in kind of a severe place but i ended in, in a severe place i was getting panic attacks quite regularly almost daily i was in the emergency room twice because i had really bad stomach aches from the stress and so really prompted me to start to think about, do I want to stay in the profession? Should I go back to the firm that I was at? Should I do something completely different? And and obviously I decided the latter.
1: Wow. Those are some, some strong signals there. So we're going to talk about that. I also want to hear, you've got a great turn of a, Phrase acronym. You have a list of TNTs or tiny noticeable things. Can you share with those? What are some of those? How do we think about them, and and how do we manage them? Because because panic attacks. I mean, wow, that's powerful. And uh, and thank you for sharing. And I think that to the extent that there there could be some early warnings that would be great. And it sounds like you've cataloged a few of those. What are they?
0: So. I had three kind of early warnings that something was amiss that was off compared to how I had been processing and just dealing with stress, you know, being in a in a stressful profession for the years prior to this happening. Uh, so I was first and foremost chronically, physically, and emotionally exhausted. So sometimes people will ask me, what do you mean by chronic? And there is no hardcore definition. It's not like three months or two months or four weeks or what, you know, eight months or what have you. It's just that for more often than not over a period of time, feeling that nothing that I did really was able to replenish my energy. So on the weekends when I wasn't working, typically I would play co-ed softball or hang out with my friends or just spend time doing activities that I enjoy, playing sports and things like that. And those were always very meaningful and connective and energy-giving pursuits for me. And they stopped being so after a point in time during this process. And it kind of boiled down to at some point, I just wanted the couch and some bad reality television. And I wanted everybody to leave me alone. There was this sense of like, just get out of my space. I'm trying to rejuvenate. Help, you know, leave me alone. Kind of a, kind of a mentality, and that's not my normal personality. And so that was something that was really eye-opening for me. And and even more so was the second big warning sign that I missed is that I was chronically cynical. So everyone just started to annoy me and bug me. And that was my friends, my family, my colleagues, my clients, which is horrible, right? You know, I'm I'm, here I am charged to help people deal with their sophisticated legal challenges. And outwardly, I was always very professional, but inwardly, I'm doing a lot of eye rolling and thinking to myself, like, do we really have to have this conversation? Can you handle this on your own? And clearly the answer was no. And then that led to a sense of like, lost impact. You know, it just, you know, am I really doing what I want to do in my career? Like why bother? Who cares? Was starting to come up in my phrasing a lot and in my thought process. And so it's really when we talk about burnout and use that word, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the combination and the constellation of those three things, chronic exhaustion, chronic cynicism, and the sense of lost impact. And so that's really where I think we need to sort of Punctuate that these days, I think we're using the word burnout really loosely as a synonym for just feeling frustrated or overwhelmed or stressed out. And it's not necessarily a suitable synonym for those things. It's really that constellation of three things is what we mean when we're talking about burnout.
1: Well, that's a helpful distinction. Thank you. I was I was going to ask that next. So, well, well, maybe let's let's zoom out a bit and share. That, that's one key discovery that may surprise people or, or that find counterintuitive. Any other you know big surprises or fascinating discoveries you've made along the way as you've you've researched and worked in this area?
0: Yeah, there's a couple So first and foremost when I was sort of coming out of my my burnout experience and in recovering and going to get my master's in applied positive psychology and kind of moving on with my career, so I started to think back about the experience that I had burning out, I really uh, thought about it very much in terms of an individual type thing, right? An experience. What did I do wrong? What did I miss? What could I have done better? And I realized as I continued to study the research, as I continued to coach people and talk to people and interview people about their burnout experiences, that we were really missing a big piece of the puzzle in that we really have to start thinking about burnout less in terms of it being an individual issue or problem. We still have to have those conversations, but the bigger piece of the puzzle in the picture is really kind of drawing in the rest of the system. So burnout is very much a systemic issue that requires holistic strategies. So we need to look at the leader level. We need to look at the team level. We need to look still at the individual contributor level to examine how all of these pieces need to start to kind of fit together the conversations that need to be had so that we can actually do something about burnout. So that's part of the big thesis of my book. So that was, that was a big moment. The other aha that I had, and I knew this intuitively, but I wasn't finding anything empirically kind of talking about this until I stumbled across a study from a couple of years ago Actually, showing that high levels of engagement can also travel with high levels of burnout. So, there's a lot of burnout research positioning engagement as the opposite of burnout for a whole host of reasons. And it just didn't make sense to me. And I knew a lot of people who felt the sense of burnout, but were still really kind of like wanting to do good work and they weren't unplugged like I was. And and so the study really, really drove that home and, and found that of the group of people that they were looking at, about 20% or so of people met this highly engaged, highly burned out classification where people still felt that they wanted to do good work. In some instances would say they liked their work, but they were in very high demand jobs and not getting enough resources to really help them manage and deal with all of the stress they were experiencing from their demands. And really importantly, they found that this group, this 20% group, actually experienced the highest turnover intention. So, even more so than the people like me who were flat out burned out saying, I'm gone, I'm done. And so, that's something that I really like to punctuate for leaders. You know, don't assume that somebody classifies as engaged that they aren't also or could potentially turn out to be burned out. And so, I've seen that now play out in a few ways with the work that I've done. So a team that I worked with in a healthcare organization had about a 28% or so rate of burnout within their team, yet they were in the top tier for engagement scores within the organization. So that was one instance. You know, I've had a couple of coaching clients who have identified exactly this way, who printed out some of my material and took it into their boss and said, look, I don't have any of these resources that we know are important to preventing burnout. I need some help help here because I still like, I want to do good work, but I'm like worn out because I, I'm not getting enough of this. So yeah, so I'm seeing that theme come up more. Well,
1: that's a powerful tip right there in terms of, Hey, I'm not, just a, I'm not just a whiner. You know, these are psychologically validated things that people need. Here's a list from a third party with yeah. a reputable authoritative source and I need some of that. And, and I mean, I think most leaders who give a hoot would say, hey, yeah, fair enough. You're right. I mean, let's let's see what we can do here. And also that point about engagement, that really resonates because sometimes I think, well, I don't want to misuse the word burnout since we've precisely defined it. But when mm-hmm. I felt some burnout-esque feelings, yes. <laughs> that, that's part of it is just like, I care so much that it's exhausting. And sometimes I think, man, if I just didn't care, then it this wouldn't be a big deal to me. I wouldn't feel so stressed or overwhelmed by this because I'd be like, well, hey, whether that outcome goes in, in direction A or B, whatever, right? But, but no, I care very much. I want it to go absolutely in direction A and I don't see it going that way. And that's frustrating. Ah.
0: Yes, I mean, and I think that Adam Grant has a phenomenal, he's got a phenomenal lot of stuff, but he mentions this term in an article that I believe he co-wrote I think with a classmate of mine actually at UPenn and they call it generosity burnout. Mm -hmm. So this notion of caring so much that we prioritize everybody else's needs above our own and that causes us to wear out and burnout essentially. And so, so he talks about how we have to figure out how we can still exercise our giver tendencies, which are really important, especially if you orient that way, but also taking into account, what do you have to do to deal with and manage your stress in a way that kind of puts those boundaries in place so that you're not just purely giving a hundred percent of your time. And I think he cites a study or talks about a study where they actually looked at a group of teachers or teachers and found that teachers who were these pure givers, right. Who, you know, you would think like are constantly devoting their time to, you know, helping their students with any issue that came up. Actually, their students had lower test scores compared to teachers who were also givers, but implementing more of a boundary approach to how they gave to other people. So so I thought that that was fascinating. So we have to figure out how to give with limits, Mm -hmm. care with limits.
1: I, I hear you. And you've got a, a nifty model when it comes to thinking about burnouts and teams and being successful, the primed model. Can you give us a, a bit of the the overview there and, and some top tips that uh, make a big impact?
0: Yeah. So when I was t- kind of taking a step back and thinking about how I wanted to position this topic and, and understanding that if framing burnout as purely an individual issue with individual strategies isn't enough to really move the needle. And the research suggests, and you know, a lot of my own interviews and things suggest that there's such a strong organizational culture element associated with burnout. I also can't go into organizations and be realistic and say, hey, let's just change your culture and everything will be fine. That's not realistic for a whole host of reasons. And so I was thinking to myself, where within the system is going to be the best entry point? Where can we really start to think about moving the needle in the right direction? And so for me, the answer became teams, just simply because so many people, not all people, of course, but so many people work in teams. There's a lot of research about what creates a resilient and high-performing and thriving team. And so I started to dig into all of that and realize that there were similar themes that kept coming up in the research. And that became the model that I started to use and started to work by. And so very importantly, one of the P's in the primed model is psychological safety. So building trust within the team and prioritizing relationships is the R and talking about the impact and the meaning that teams have within their organizations and just having those conversations is important. Energy, mental strength. So a lot of times we don't think about how, how our own thinking or the collective thinking of the team can really be exhausted if we're thinking in a counterproductive way and how it can undercut our efforts to create the cohesion and the trust and the high performance that we want within our teams. And then design is the last piece. You know. So really understanding and, and recognizing if we realize there are tweaks that we need to make, how do we go about doing that? How do we kind of design the environment that we want to be in for ourselves? So that's the model in a big overview.
1: Okay, sure. So we got the psychological safety and needs, the relationship, the impact, the mental strength and mindset, the energy and the design. Yes. I'm spelling the word primed. Yes. And so then in terms of of quick wins, what are some of the the top things that we can do to get a nice boost on some of these dimensions?
0: Sure. So I call them tiny noticeable things as, as we talked about. So a little acronym suggesting that it's not necessarily these big, shifts. Sometimes I think when we start to have this conversation, we think that we have to make these wild shifts in our behavior or we've got to do these big things to kind of change what we're doing. And in essence, it's really smaller things done more consistently over time that really matter. And so it's simple things like attentiveness, like when someone joins the Zoom call, say, hey, Joe, it's really nice to see you. How's it going? It's seeking out other people and making sure you're hearing from opinions from everybody. It's limiting side conversations conversations, clicks, and gossip, which is a huge aspect of psychological safety. It's a leader saying, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I haven't seen this before. What do you all think? It's sharing and then capitalizing on good news and wins, really, really small ones, especially not just the big moments that we oftentimes think about. And it could be as simple as being more transparent. So as a leader, cluing people in more on what they need to know, asking them to participate in decisions that impact their work, being more clear, which could be adding a sentence or two to an email, giving more of a rationale or an explanation around a task instead of you know, having come from the legal profession. I heard this so many times, well, too bad. This is what I had to do on my way to partner. So you're gonna have to work on Thanksgiving as well and who cares, right? But explaining why that's important and and framing it in a little bit of a different way leads to more of a perception of flexibility and autonomy. So there's just, it's these little kind of tweaks and hacks that leaders and individual contributors and teams can start to prioritize essentially.
1: And what are some of those, those hacks when it comes to mental strength and mindset?
0: So one of my favorite skills is, and this is probably a little bit more on the, what I would classify on the individual side of the house in terms of a skill, but it comes up all the time in my work across the board with professionals. So it's limiting catastrophizing or worst case scenario thinking. So it's our tendency when something stressful has happened and it can be a really small stressor. It could be as simple as like getting an email from your boss that says, call me back or come see me now. And it doesn't have any other details and your brain's going to, you know, jump to some conclusion. And it's, it's never, I did a great job. It's almost always, I did something wrong and I'm going to get fired. That's where we go. And so it's a process just to help you think through gaining some perspective and clarity when you're in those moments. And so I just, I call it your horror movie, Disney movie documentary. So horror movie is just getting out of your head, all of those likely unrealistic thoughts and story that you're telling yourself. The Disney movie is kind of creating the opposite version, even if it's unrealistic, because you're just looking for a smile or a jolt of positive emotion and then the documentary is just being very factual, being very fact-based. Okay, I've got a little bit more perspective. What am I really dealing with here and what do I actually have to do about it? Do I have to email my boss back? Do I have to go look at the file? Like what is it that I have to do so I'm not just sitting here not purposely acting in some way. So that's one of my one of my favorites.
1: Well, that is handy so we got that those three perspectives, the the whore, the Disney and the documentary. And I think that's also a good team tip in terms of hey, maybe don't send emails like that to your teammates. <laughs>
0: I tell leaders all the time, add one more sentence. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. yeah, absolutely, that that's handy. And yeah, because one sentence will, will probably do it. And and occasionally, even if it is negative, like you know, you do want to have a hard conversation where you deliver some some difficult feedback. You could just even giving a little bit more context is handy. It's like, hey, I'd like to catch up on this piece of work or whatever, you know, it's just like, okay, so that's what we're talking about. It's not, I'm going to be fired It's we're going to talk about this piece of work. And maybe I've got a hunch that, oops, I think I wasn't my best there. <laughs> so there might be a couple things that are hard to hear, but it's less room to catastrophize when you've got that extra context.
0: Yes. And we also have to realize, you know, and I put in there too, is being aware and mindful of our triggers. What in our environment, triggers counterproductive thinking in the first place. So for me, it's vague and ambiguous information. I absolutely hate those emails and those types of situations where I don't know all of the information or details because my brain is just, especially as a former lawyer, we're trained to issue spot. We're trained to analyze a situation from every single angle. And so it can be a very easy thinking style to do. And another trigger that, can promote counterproductive thinking is anytime it's the first time that we're doing something. And so thinking about a colleague who might be new to your team or new to the organization, even if they're a seasoned professional, they're oftentimes kind of trying to orient. And most of the conversations they're having with people are people who they don't know. And so it's their first time leading a meeting or turning in a project or getting feedback or things like that. And so when we can kind of build collectively that awareness of what might be causing or what could cause counterproductive thinking in our team members. I think that can help us, again, leverage some of that clarity, just leverage some kindness and, and, you know, say, "Hey, hey, let's go have a chat. I remember when I started, here's, you know, here's some perspective for my end. So we can, I think, just think about situations a little bit differently.
1: Well, and you mentioned lawyer training, issue spotting. And it's interesting. I was going through a process recently. So we're planning a move and that's a whole lot. Mm, Yes. And so I was thinking, I was like, okay, what are all the things that could go horribly wrong? And how can I mitigate that? And so, and that was pretty productive in the sense of, okay, well, I could, I should get some help in, in these key areas. And then like the probability of things going horribly wrong is, is way lower. So that was productive, but at the same time, spending too much time in that thought zone was, was getting me a little freaked out. So do you have any pro tips on, on that? It can be necessary to do the issue spotting, the anticipating, I, I don't want to use the word worrying, but planning for the worst and prepping. So if we're, if we're in that zone and maybe right. So how do we return to a happy place?
0: So what you're talking about so that's a really important distinction for us to make and what you're talking about a little bit there is contingency planning. Yeah. So contingency planning is good. It's it's not a bad thing to to think about worst case scenarios. Oftentimes it's necessary, right? If I am in an airplane and it's foggy outside, I want my pilot thinking about what could go wrong and should we take off, right? So contingency planning is purposeful action. We're purposefully doing something to get closer to an outcome a goal, a relationship, what have you. Catastrophizing is a little bit different. It's it's really spinning our wheels. We stop taking purposeful action. It pulls us farther away from some of the goals and things that we want. And so that's why it's more of a counterproductive piece. That's how you can distinguish between whether you're just contingency planning, which is purposeful. I'm moving forward. I'm not stuck. My wheels aren't spinning versus the other side of the coin, which is the catastrophizing piece. I remember To give you an example, I catastrophized a bunch. And so I can remember when I was a lawyer, I think I was a second year associate and I had just finished this huge project for a very important partner and I hadn't heard anything back from him in a couple of weeks. And he came down from the different floor he was on and he walked right by my office with the file under his arm into the office next door to mine, which was my mentors, who was a good friend of his and shut the door. So right away, vague and ambiguous information and oh no, there he goes. He didn't even think to stop and talk to me. It's that bad. And so when I say not taking purposeful action, I really kind of froze a little bit. And and I wasn't thinking clearly about the actual document I was working on. I was now focused on trying to hear what was going on in the office next to mine. And another partner came into my office and gave me a new assignment that was actually fairly complex. And I realized that when he left my office, I had taken like a sentence of notes because my brain was so consumed with what was happening in the office next to mine. I wasn't present in, in even a remote way. And so that's what I mean when I say, stopped taking purposeful action. I, I really wasn't present or thoughtful or thinking through any sort of issue or project that I should have been.
1: Well, yeah. And that's a great example, which shows sort of the, the negative consequences and implications of, of going down that rabbit hole. And so let's sort of play it back in time. If you've got that other partner entering the office and your brain is elsewhere, how do you quickly get your brain where you need it to be?
0: Well, and that's part of the reason why this thinking style is so powerful and it's powerfully counterproductive because it's, it's hard to do. And so practicing those steps of horror movie, Disney movie, documentary become important because you want to be able to sort of recall those quickly so that even if it's just, you know, tell the partner, give me a minute here and you can jot down some notes about what you're thinking. It might give you a little bit more perspective or clarity in the moment. But it can be really hard to do on the spot if you haven't had some practice with how that with how that thinking style goes.
1: That makes great sense. So we, we go back to the the movie approach, which is great. Any other techniques or, or tactics right in the in the heat of things?
0: So one of my colleagues, I love the little phrase or mantra that she came up with for this. She says, stay in the now and stick to the facts. So it can be a very centering thing to say to yourself because what we oftentimes do when we're catastrophizing is we go to a future story. We're generating a what if scenario. We're saying if this something happens down the road, here's what's going to be the result. So we're in a future oriented space and we're oftentimes there without very little, without a lot of evidence to support it, right? So, you know, I might have been thinking to myself, he's never going to give me any more work. No other partner is going to give me any work. I'm not going to make my hours. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to have to move back in with my parents, right? All that has happened is a person has entered the next room over. And if I've got myself... By joke living in a van down by the river or having to move back home with my parents because of it, that's highly unlikely and unrealistic to happen. And there's not really much evidence or data I have to support thinking that way. But we convince ourselves that it's very real and it feels very real because it's a powerful thinking style. And so just kind of snapping yourself out of that by saying, stay in the now and stick to the facts reminds you that if you don't have any facts to support it, if you can dial it back or let it go a little bit.
1: Lovely. And if we don't have that positive team support, we mentioned one thing is just, just ask for it. Hey, here's some things that people need. And I, I need some of those. And we've got some of the mental strength and mindset pieces. Any other pro tips for if you find yourself in an unsupported world, how do you stay strong?
0: So This tends to come up too. Sometimes I'll get the question, what if I don't have a team? So, you know, you can look at it in a couple of ways. Like I don't have a supportive team or I don't even have a team. Like maybe I own a business on my own or I'm a creative and I spend most of my days writing or painting and I don't have a team to kind of lean on or rely on. One equation that I give people, if you could think about or formula, if you could think about what causes burnout is you have too many demands and too few resources. So you have too many things that take consistent effort and energy about your work and too few things that are motivational and energy giving about your work, whether you're in the midst of a big team or whether you're on your own, the formula applies. So taking a step back and thinking to yourself really consciously, what are the things that take consistent effort and energy about my work? Is there anything I can modify? Is there anything I can delegate? Is there anything I can change or offload and start to examine some of those pieces? Sometimes the answer is no, but sometimes, especially in a coaching relationship, Things maybe you hadn't seen can be identified, but really importantly is leveraging or identifying what are the resources? What are the motivational or energy giving aspects of my work? What am I not leaning on? Am I not bringing my strengths to the table enough? Are there partnerships that I have formed that I'm not leveraging, perhaps, things like that to help people start to recognize, gosh, maybe I really do need a better support system. What can I start to do to put that in place becomes really the right conversation for folks to start to have.
1: Lovely. Well, tell me, Paula, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things?
0: One of the questions I'm most frequently asked and one of the things that I think is really important and one of the things that I wish I would have done sooner is that I think it's important to start talking about stress generally within our teams, not shying away from the topic so it doesn't feel like a weird thing for us to be talking about. But if you are feeling like more exhausted or frustrated or trending toward burnout or actually there is to say something. And, you know, whether that's to a leader, whether that's to a colleague who you trust, a friend that you have at work, a friend outside of work, you know, really being specific about what you're feeling and then what is it that you need going forward, right? Is it just a day off? Is it an extended period of time off? Do you need to, Switch teams for a period of time, if that's even possible. Being intentional and thoughtful about what it is that you want and need from the situation is also important. So I, I would say that very consistently I hear from people who I've interviewed and talked to. Either I'm so glad somebody said something to me or I wish somebody had said something to me. You know, if, if I'm operating in, in a world of cynicism, I think I'm hiding it pretty well. But those eye rolls start to get noticed by other people. And if you're noticing it, pull me aside and say something so that I can realize that the behavior is going in a in not so great direction.
1: Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you thought inspiring?
0: Life hinges on a couple of seconds you never see coming. And it's a quote by Marisha Pessel. And I think you can sort of think about moments in your life and it can be like downside moments, things you didn't see coming, times you've fallen in love. So translate that into like a positive moment or a positive situation when you meet somebody who you fall in love with and you didn't see it coming. I just thought it was really interesting and it made me think. And a favorite book? Anything by Brene Brown. And a favorite tool? Anything having to do with cooking. I'm a huge baker and I love cooking. So any tools that help me do those things better in the kitchen.
1: Is there a particular one that is just the coolest?
0: A really good knife. I feel that there are so many like gadgets on the market that really don't do much that a really great knife can get you a long way when it comes to cooking.
1: And a favorite habit?
0: Exercising. I run almost every morning.
1: And is there a particular nugget you share that really connects resonates with folks? They quote it back to you a lot.
0: I would say probably the small TNT type strategies and that acronym people. I tend to hear that a lot from folks.
1: And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
0: I would point them to BeatBurnoutNow.com, which will take you to my website where you can learn more about my book and everything that I'm doing in my institute.
1: All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
0: Do what you love. Even if you can't manifest or create the big job, dream job that you want, really pay attention to the small moments of meaning. And the small moments of things that you do during the day that you feel like you're in the zone and really light you up and start to just sprinkle those in a little bit more intentionally during your day and your week.
1: All right, Paula, this has been a treat. Uh, Thank you. I wish you all the best.
0: Thank you so much, Pete.
1: I'm really digging that mantra from Paula stay in the now and stick to the facts. If you're about to go into crazy, speculation as to terrifying stuff that could be happening or what this means. Oh, wait, remember. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're going to stay in the now. We're going to stick to the facts. Great stuff from Paula. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesome at your slash EP six, six, two. I hope to catch you next time. And peace.
0: Thanks for listening to get the most out of the show. We recommend two key things. First check out the extra resources at awesome at your If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Pepper play sets. Pepper Pig.